This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. I'm Max Flight. We're on hiatus for the summer of 2023, and since we don't like leaving you without an Airplane Geeks episode, we have another replay from the past. This time, it's Ward Carroll from episode 680. Ward is a former F-14 naval aviator who spent 20 years as an F-14 radar intercept officer. He is the author of the best-selling Punk trilogy about the life in an F-14 squadron. Punk's fight, Punk's war, and Punk's wing are widely considered to be realistic portrayals of naval aviators in the context of a techno-thriller. In episode 680, my co-hosts were David Vanderhoof, Max Trescott, Rob Mark, and our main man, Micah. Here's our conversation. All right. Again, we're speaking with Ward Carroll, former F-14 naval aviator, author of the Punks novels. Uh, Ward, you also have a YouTube channel, which has some, uh, some really fascinating videos. I particularly enjoyed, I think as we record this, I think it was your, your latest video, which was uh, about um, the different paint schemes on the Tomcat. And you had an interesting uh, way to rank these. Yes, it's scientific and proprietary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Mooch Tally. The Mooch Tally. I've used that before for the uh, top 25 military movie lines. Mooch was my call sign. Um, so the Mooch Tally is just a way to rack and stack any list of, of things you're trying to you know, aggregate. And, and so, yeah, just having a little fun with that. Um, that was about the, uh, the paint schemes. And, and I also factored in some other elements that maybe were a little bit of a surprise if people thought it was just going to be about what, what does the airplane look like on the ramp? Um, you know, patches, tactical call signs, some tiebreakers were um, sort of the, the history of the squadron. You know, if they have a World War II heritage, like the, you know, Tom Catters or the Jolly Rogers or the Grim Reapers even, which was the F-14 training squadron. I was both a student and an instructor in, in VF-101. Um, and the number one, not to spoil anybody who hasn't seen the, the episode, is, is VF-84, which was made uh, famous by the movie The Final Countdown, which was the first time I'd ever seen an F-14 in action, uh, was in that movie. I saw that when I was a midshipman at the Naval Academy in a movie theater that isn't there anymore here in Annapolis. So, um, you know, that movie's near and dear to my heart. I've done an episode about that movie as well um, that, that's kind of fun. So, yeah, I'm having fun with the channel. I'm, a, I'm working on uh, an episode now about the Achille Laro incident. Um, you guys may remember that CAG-17, VF-103, and before they were the Jolly Rogers, they were the Sluggers, and VF-74, the B-Devilers. I've dealt with that squadron in an episode where Smoke Dorsey shot down an Air Force F-4 in a training exercise. Um, so the B-Devilers have been mentioned on the channel before. But this is uh, the PLA terrorists killed an American tourist aboard the Achille Laro um, and then tried to escape out of Egypt in a 737. The airplane was redirected by a group of F-14s at night, operating with their lights out. It was quite a sporty evolution and a real coordination of the battle group assets, E-2 
had sort of the big picture. The Italians weren't terribly happy that the airplanes landed at Siganella, which was the air, air, air base there, the American air base in Sicily. They wanted it to go to Catania, and they weren't real happy that the airplane was coming to Italy in any case. And so when the airplane was forced to land at Siganella, um, there was a little problem between the American special forces that had landed behind the airplane in two C-141s and the Italian army. Um, and, and so they squared off at the airfield, and, and it could have got kinetic. Unfortunately, it did not. And the solution was they handed um, the terrorists over to the Italians. And uh, we were just happy that, you know, that, that they didn't get away because it looked like the Egyptians were going to let them go. Um, so that's what my next episode's about. But, you know, I'm trying to do two or three a week. Um, the channel, I started about this time last year, um, and it was uh, pretty paltry stats at first. You know, it's just like anything else. you got to crawl, walk, run. Um, my mentor is a music YouTuber, a guy named Rick Beato. If you guys are guitarists, you probably know about Rick. He just interviewed Sting on his channel. Um, so he showed me the ropes. We became friends because I'm a frustrated rock and roller, and he's a frustrated politico. And so um, we got together here in Annapolis while he was visiting the Paul Reed Smith Guitar Factory across uh, across the bay from us. And he said, hey, why are you doing so much Twitter? Why don't you start a YouTube channel? And I had a YouTube channel. It was like a repository for dog show videos and my nephews eating a chocolate egg as fast as they could <laughs> or whatever, you know, just you know, nonsense family stuff. And he's like, no, no, just do what you do on Twitter, except talking to your phone. So I did that. And, and nobody cared until um, the truth about the F-14 and Goose's death episode. So I, I did that episode just before Christmas last year. So we're coming up on a year. And it, it literally laid there for three months these are the vagaries of the YouTube algorithm. And so, you know, I'm doing a little bit of here's how you write procedurals. Here's a little bit of, you know, Ward's take on the political landscape. Here's how to fast forward your guitar prowess, some tricks. You know, all, it's sort of a renaissance thing. Um, and then suddenly on April 17th of 2021, that episode had 80,000 plays in one day. Um, and so I called Rick. I'm like, what is going on? And I didn't do a thing. I didn't promote it. I didn't, you know, it, it just rocketed up. And so Rick said, well, you, the algorithm has figured out you're a subject matter expert through some confluence of search terms and keywords and interest and maybe some DCS, you know, simulator stuff going on. But and this is before I was using iMovie. You know, there's no post-production. It's me talking. I'm like one take Jake talking in the phone for a long time, you know, uh, using this Tomcat model behind me, just holding it and talking about flat spin characteristics and where Goose didn't follow boldface procedures and that he didn't jettison the canopy before he ejected. And as a function of that, he hit the canopy with his head on the way out. Um, and so Rick's like, OK, guess what? The audience gets a vote. You now have a military aviation channel. <laughs> Whether you want one or not, right? Yeah. And and so I unlisted all the stuff that wasn't military aviation because he said you're gonna you're gonna anger those who think 
It's sort of like if you listen to an album and it's rock and roll and then every song around that is like acoustic, it pisses you off. Right. Um, so it was going to be the same thing for my channel. If, you know, if you thought you were getting this guy who's going to talk with his hands and he's doing other things, it would just, you know, you don't subscribe pretty fast. So that was fine because as you've seen since that time, I've done like 80 episodes dealing with primarily aviation. There's some history in there. Um, there's a lot of just my stories or those of my friends or the, the Tomcat Mafia, to include the one I'm going to do tomorrow, that's Achille Lauro is an F-14 story. And I know some of the guys that were involved in that. Um, I'm going to do one about, this is sort of a companion to the VF-1 episode I did a couple of weeks ago, which was the only Tomcat shoot down in Desert Storm. And you may know that they shot down a helicopter, an MI-8 near Basra. That was the only Tomcat shoot down in Desert Storm. We can talk about the reasons that was so. It's it's more than just the capability of the F-14. Um, but uh, the only other thing of note that happened to the F-14 is VF-103 off of the Saratoga had an airplane shot down over western Iraq. Rat Slade and Devin Jones, Boots Jones, Boots was the pilot, Rat was the Rio, got shot down by an SA-2. Um they had the raw gear, their radar warning gear was lit up, but they didn't see the missile because they were over a cloud deck. It's like rule number one of where you don't want to be in a SAM environment. Um, and they saw the missile too late to do any dodging maneuvers, and it exploded near them and blew off their tail. So Rat was captured. Boots was picked up by the Air Force helicopter. So I'm going to do an episode with Rat, who I served with later. He was also the guy who was instrumental in getting the Lantern pod, the precision-guided munitions pod, on the F-14 in the mid-'90s. Um, Rat did that after he'd been a POW. So the point I'm making is my episodes are a lot of riffing on the network I have, you know, um, being a raconteur around that. Some of it is my stories, like, you know, uh, real, real responsibilities. The DCS community, the, the simulator community, um, particularly those who who use the F-14 module, both pilots and Rios want to know, like, is this right? Is this simulation replicating real life? And is our comms right, both descriptive and dis- directive? And the Rios want to know, okay, what's our intercept timeline look like? So I've done sort of chalk talks on that and talked about real responsibilities using my career as sort of the algorithm. Um, and so that's, you know, that's easy for me to talk about what I did during my career. I mean, I'm a fighter guy. We, we love to talk about ourselves, right? <laughs> um, so I, it's kind of become a thing. You know, I'm a YouTube partner. I, I work uh, only part-time now at the Naval Institute as a function of that. Um, the revenue is real. And uh, I'm excited to continue to grow the channel. I just hit 150, 150,000 subscribers today. And this time last year, I had eight. Um, so... It's been a cool year. I kind of like feel like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, you know, things were crazy. And the impact is really fun and it's daunting. You know, I'll get some testimonials from folks. They're like, my grandpa never talked to me until we watched an episode of your channel together. And then he told me all these stories. So thank you for that. And you're like, wow. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's amazing. The Punk's trilogy has been republished as a function of the, the popularity of the channel. And I, and I wanted to ask you about that. Is it okay if we talk about the Punk Trilogy for a little sure. bit? Yeah, let's. First, first of all, congratulations on getting it republished. And and that's how we ended up 
getting in touch and getting you on the show. I saw that you republished it. I think it was uh, show friend Isaac Alexander had retweeted you before I even knew you were on Twitter. And I followed you and I posted a picture. My my books are right at the front of my shelf. And uh, and I posted a picture and you liked it and retweeted it. And, and there it is. Uh, yeah. I read them some 20 years ago because uh, Stephen Coots said, finally, somebody got it right. I couldn't put it down. And I've always been a Stephen Coots fan. And then I became a Ward Carroll fan. And I've read everything that you've written. Well, thank you. The, the books, I, I haven't read them since 20 years ago, but they stuck with me. I've given them as gifts. I've thought about them. And it really tells the life of a Rio and a carrier pilots on board the carrier. And uh, one of the things, do you happen to have a copy near you by any chance? Um, as a matter of fact, I do, Micah. Hold on. One of the things, I don't know if you can, I'll wait for you to come back. I was hoping in order to give our listeners a taste of what it's like and the insight that you give, and you mentioned that your your handle, your, your call sign was Mooch. I was wondering if you might do a reading of three paragraphs, uh, chapter sure. two. Uh, chapter two, the uh, second through the fourth paragraph that describes how a call sign comes about. So this, uh, I'm, I'm reading from the King James edition of, uh, <laughs> this is the latest version that was just republished, reissued by the Naval Institute Press. Punk's War. Of Punk's War, yeah. Uh, so, which is the debut. Within the world of call signs, there existed an unspoken hierarchy. At the bottom were aviators without one. Some were never given call signs simply because their existence was too neutral to earn them. Bill Thompson was in this group. Several names had been thrown at him during his also-ran days in VF-104, but neither BT nor Butter nor T-Dog nor B-Man stuck for the length of time it took to get a name tag made. He remained just plain Bill over the long haul, which was as strong a statement to insiders as the most colorful call sign. Bill spoke of an aviator who'd found the squadron's collective blind spot and stayed there. Without the flair and popularity of the charismatic, the faculties of the well-timed, good-natured buffoons, or the talent of the naturally blessed, and of a man who'd also avoided the dubious and spiteful appellations reserved for the infamous among them, the snakes and the darths. A bill, whether or not actually average, was guilty of exuding the dull, ineffectual resonance of average, and that, in some sense, was a greater crime than being a flaming asshole. The punishment <laughs> awarded was the scarlet letter of a real name. Just above the bills were aviators whose call signs were formed by mindlessly placing a Y at the end of their last names, like Jonesy and Smitty. At the same level were the what-else-you-going-to-call-them guys like Soup Campbell, Mac McManus, Pink Floyd, and Taco Bell. All Hosannas were reserved for those who practiced the art of commission, those iconoclasts who brightly forged a path through the jungle of the mundane and across the tundra of textbook etiquette who reached out for what they knew in their hearts to be rightfully theirs. The call sign earned by a quirk, a habit pattern, or a single stupid, perhaps compromising, and most likely embarrassing act. A call sign that begged the tale, that demanded the answer to why. A call sign like punk. <laughs> Which then goes into this incredible story that has stuck with me to this day for 20 years. And all three novels are like that. Well, thank you. That's high praise, Mike. I, I truly appreciate it. Uh, Ward, let, let me ask you this. Uh, you have, over the years, produced uh, so much content. The books, uh, now, now the YouTube channel, um, all your writing. Why do you do it? I mean, you, you know, you're retired from 
uh, from the Navy. You could be out on the golf course or, you know, polishing your, you know, your vintage automobile, you know, anything. But, but why this? Well, I am out on the golf course quite a bit, I will say. Okay. Um, that is my, my main vice. Uh, I think, Max, the, the answer is because I have to. You know, I, I think creative, I've always been creative. You know, I've got all this Beatles stuff behind me. You know, my root note is the Beatles in terms of my artistic interest. And uh, I picked up guitar at age seven. Um, I've always been in bands. I'm in a band now. Those are my best friends are the other three guys in this band that I've been in for 15 years. Um, we actually play, perform, I mean, where COVID allows these days, but but we, we are actually a, a gigging band. Um, and, and I'm quite proud of what that combo has accomplished over the years. Um, but, you know, I do freelance writing. I, I The YouTube channel is really the perfect outlet for me. And the arc of every episode is like mini writing a novel. The, you get to the three-quarter mark where you're convinced that it sucks and it's it's without any merit. You know, that's what happens when you write a novel. Each one of these books, all five of my novels, every thousand-word writing project I've done, I get to some point in it where I'm like, who cares? You know, and then it all comes together in the end. You're like, oh, I think this is pretty good, right? So that, I don't know, you got to be arrogant, which I certainly am, um, and you have to have uh, something to say that's, that's the breaks out of the clutter, you know? And so I think the question I ask people when they say they're thinking of writing a book is like, so what do you read? And if they say, I don't read, I'm like, then don't write a book, right? It's sort of like if somebody says, you know, I want to play guitar, like, well, what, who do you like? What artists do you like? Who's your favorite guitarist? Like, yeah, I don't really have a favorite guitarist. Like, then don't pick up the guitar, you know? And, and so I, I just think I've always had this, this, intangible drive, um, this hunger to create. And sometimes it, it has some, a serious element. Like you mentioned when I was at military.com, I'd write news. You know, I'm, I was in Afghanistan reporting on the war at one point or Capitol Hill talking about veterans issues. Um, when, you know, there was a lot of stuff in play, the new GI bill and, other veterans benefits that, you know, was kind of a jump ball during those years. And so how you cover that is very important. Um, I've done some political writing in recent years for the Bulwark and the Dispatch. And, uh, you know, so that's serious. But I also have done just some fun stuff and entertainment reporting. I've written for Golf World magazine. And there was a local giveaway in Virginia Beach that used to, when they used to have record stores, you'd grab this little paper on your way out of the record store called Flash. So I wrote for them for years, uh, and it was just a way to sort of, and I was actually actively flying fighters at that time. And in fact, one time, I was at VF-143 in the early 90s, and phone call comes into the duty desk, and the, the staff duty officer's like, Mooch, one of the Indigo girls wants to talk to you? <laughs> so I did a phoner. With uh, Emily of the Indigo Girls, you know, at, at the ready room of VF-143. And she's like, where did I call? You know, and so that is a perfect melding of the two sides of Mooch, right? And, and I was able to do a lot of freelance writing and also start what eventually became Punk's War during my time in a fighter squadron. You know, and it, for me, it was a way to focus during the downtime on an aircraft carrier. And there's a lot of that. You know, and, and, and so 
it was a great outlet for me to try to write a novel, which is really hard. And I was shitty at, at first. It took me a long time to get my act together even a little bit. And even to Micah's point, I, I just reread Punk's Fight. For, it's probably for the first time in 20 years, right? I'd forgotten it. And I'm reading it, and not to sound cocky, but I'm like, this is pretty damn good. You know, <laughs> it, it's a cool story, and it has elements and levels of detail and characters, and 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 so I'm like, what zone was I in? You know, when I was doing that, I was I was like possessed during those years, like, you know, '99 to to '04 was like my, you know, like again, I'll use another Beatles analogy. It's like the Beatles from 1966 to 1969. You know, that was me during those years. Um, and, and so... Revolver and Rubber Soul. Right. And White Album <laughs> and Sgt. Pepper and, you know, Abbey Road, right? All of those albums. Um, and, and so, this is a long answer, Max, but, you know, I, I'm just a creative guy. Um, and I, I walked into the front door of the Naval Academy kind of by happenstance. I was like Richard Gere. I got nowhere else to go kind of thing. You know, my parents, my dad was a Marine Corps attack pilot, not an Academy grad, but they were loving the fact that there was no tuition. Right. So like, yeah, please go there. You know, um, and I enjoyed being a mid, but I didn't really think about what I was going to do after I left the Naval Academy. Right. I mean, the thing about going to the Naval Academy did little to tell me about what it means. It's like to be in the Navy. You know, and, and I mean that in, in all seriousness, um, it was kind of an innocent existence as a midshipman. And so it's time to pick a service selection. My eyes were bad. Um, this is pre laser surgery to fix your eyes. So my only option, and I'd had the opportunity to fly a Marine Corps F4 out in Hawaii um, during my senior summer um, and uh, fell in love with it. Strapping into the ejection seat, putting on the O2, pulling G's, going supersonic talking with your hands at the O Club afterwards about, like, these are my people, you know. And so, fortunately, I got an NFO slot, and then I was bound and determined to get Tomcats once I got to flight school. So if I had tried as hard at the Naval Academy grade-wise as I did in flight school, I would have been a 4-0 kind of student at the Naval Academy. I was not. I was a 2-7 kind of guy at the Naval Academy. But I loved aviation. I loved everything about it, and I was very aero-adaptable. You know, a lot of my classmates got air sick and and just couldn't function um, in the air. You know, some of my smartest classmates bailed after their first flight because they're like, that sucked. I don't want to do that again. You know, they wound up going ships or subs or whatever. Um, I loved it. Strapping on a G suit. The whole thing just was like, this is where I belong. So something about that with my personality, my creative side just worked, you know. So. I will say, though, there, you know, there are a lot of Philistines in the military, so not everybody embraced, uh, you know, the, the people being creative. So you had to kind of be um, guarded about, you know, you don't want to, like, walk into the red room and start strumming an acoustic guitar or something, you know. But by and large, I was able to nurture my creative side in myriad ways while I was in the Navy. You know, it, it's not a monolithic experience. I obviously love love what it, I was able to do, and I've made it into the theme of my channel now, right? So I'm still talking about the glory days of being a Tomcat Rio. And in the book, and I can't remember which novel it was, but um, you you wrote about uh, one of your characters was an F-14 uh, uh, Tomcat pilot that was a woman. And at that time, when you were in the uh, uh, in the Navy, a woman 
Comcat pilot was, or a pilot on a carrier was very rare. And you wrote about the kinds of things that, that she was going through and how difficult it was. And you were able to cover that. Uh, I mean, obviously, I don't have the same perspective as, as having been in the Navy, or, but it was, seemed very, very real to me. And, and, and I'm wondering um, if you can talk a little bit about how you were able to get that perspective. Did you, uh, did you serve with someone uh, like that and be able to discuss what was going on or see it? It was a really fascinating several chapters about that situation. Well, that's thanks for teeing that up, Micah. That's a that's a great topic. So you're you're talking about Punk Swing, the the sophomore effort. Um, so this is as you talk about a writer's life. I thought this book was going to be about a lying, cheating defense contractor, and it, no spoilers. But there's a mishap uh, at the beginning of the book, and uh, you have some indication that there was an uncommanded role. And you also have some indication that the tech rep for this defense firm is is kind of trying to bury some of the details about why the airplane rolled and hit the airplane next to it. So, but I also introduced this female training student named uh, Muddy. Her call sign was Muddy, and uh, she's you know pluckish and 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 tough, but limited stick and rudder skills. So. I did live through the first wave of female integration, um, and and it was born of the tailhook scandal of 1991, or at least it was it was fast forwarded by the tailhook scandal of 1991. For more on that, see my Kara Holt Green mishap episode, um, which is by the way my most popular episode, 1.7 million views and counting. Um, and I sort of talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room when you talk about that mishap, which is the way that the first generation of females were introduced, particularly to the F-14 community, um, and, and where they came from and what was sort of suppressed in terms of their records to that point and what chances they were given that a, a male aviator wouldn't have been given and all of these kinds of things. So we all bear the scars of, of that period. It was not pretty. Um, perhaps it was necessary because now there are females in every fighter squadron and it's no big deal. I was just at Tailhook um, back in September and, you know, you, you see females in flight suits and, and walking around and they're the female skippers, female air wing commanders. Um, we actually have a female carrier CO now and we'll have a female strike group commander very soon. Maybe we'll have a female aviator, TAC air type, CNO before too long. So, okay, not a big deal anymore. But back in the day, it was a big deal. And it was a big deal because of the political pressure, the crucible that was levied on, again, I'll talk about the Tomcat community, in a way that perturbated the natural order. And the natural order is the airplane doesn't know what gender you are. The airplane only knows what you do to the throttle and the stick and the rudders. And so if you don't have the ability as an aviator to do what needs to be done, the airplane is going to crash, you know. Um, and so that was part of the problem in that era. So what I wanted to do with that character, Muddy, because too often in these techno thrillers, and this is why I started writing Punk's Wars, because I'm reading these techno thrillers and everybody's loving the CAG and all the airplanes work great. And, you know, it, it's like this hagiography, this this hero worship I'm like, I'm in the business and I don't recognize anybody in this book. You know, and to me, what makes the profession amazing is that there are human beings doing this job. 
you know, flawed human beings, selfish, people who like porn or who drink too much or who lie or, you know, whatever. But at, at the root, they have this talent and this drive that gets the job done, you know. And so that's why Punk's War introduces you to a warts and all cast of characters that, you know, I mean, people either love what I'm doing or they, they don't. And I got some hate mail, like literally hate mail um, when Punk's War first came out from some pretty high ranking officers. Um, they were like, I can't believe you're, you know, you're dissing the community like this. I'm like, well, I'm not trying. It's a love letter, really. You know, Sue Campbell's a flawed guy, but I sure love him, you know. Um, and uh, he's an amalgam of a lot of CEOs that I had, you know. And so mendacious, megalomania, you know, all the other stuff that happens in any profession. But you put a bunch of type A people in this thing called a fighter squadron, and now you put them under these high-pressure situations, and stuff's going to emerge. The character flaws are going to emerge. But the job gets done, right? Wars are won. Con ops are, are you know, or wars are prevented by uh, the prowess of carrier aviators. And that's kind of what I think I did uh, through the Punks trilogy. But anyway, back to this one. Muddy as, and this is why I'm really happy this book has been republished, reissued, because, and this is kind of inside baseball. So first novel published by Naval Press. I was just going to say, I wanted to make sure. This one is the, the third, and it's Punk's Wing. This is the second one. It's the second. The second, I'm sorry. Punk's yeah, Wing. Punk's Fight is the third one, right? So Punk's Wing is the second one. So Punk, it's, it opens with Punk as a rag instructor, so he's a, a training command instructor on shore duty. And what I thought I was going to show you is you think shore duty is going to be like chill compared to sea duty, but in many ways it's harder, you know? Um, and, and again, that's not quite what this turned out to be. The book started to write itself and the female character emerged like she wouldn't go away. You know, I mean, she just was like, talk about me, you know. And so once I opened myself up to that that reality, she just was a really cool. There's a lot of nuance and you really do fall in love with her. And there's a little bit of sexual tension between her and punk um, that I think is kind of cool and fair. You know, and, uh, you know, she I, again, I'm not going to spoil it, but it's not a cliche. Right. And and I think it's a real portrayal of that archetype uh, of and, and the, the female pilots that I flew with during that era, both as a rag instructor and uh, in, in others in the training command, a fellow instructor. Uh, I flew a TA4 with a female uh, A6 pilot and I flew uh, with a future astronaut when she was going through the rag and she was awesome. Right. And, and so it was never about, we don't want females in naval aviation. It was about, we don't want to dumb down the standards to get females to, to squatters to fill a quota because you're going to kill somebody. And in fact, we did kill, kill Kara Hulkring, you know, and, and uh, that can be laid at the feet of, you know, Schroeder and Boxer and all of the Barbara Spiggy and Pope and all the other politicos that demanded that it happen right now. Like you find somebody and you put her in a fighter squadron now, you know, and, and so, okay, aye, aye, ma'am. And boom, there you go. That was the tension of the, and it was never really, and the beauty of fiction is you, you can actually make it real, more real than, than, you know, a direct reading of what actually happened around the tail scandal and, you know, Skipper's getting fired and Miramar 
burning to the ground and all the other stuff that happened post tail hook 91 ugly times you know puking dogs were made the dogs now you can't be the puking dogs you have to be the dogs you know never mind you have a vietnam era heritage where your skipper got shot down and was a pow um but now you're the dogs fortunately they reversed that shortly thereafter and now they're the puking dogs again and they fly super hornets but um you know that era was i mean they had like nis ncis guys coming by the squadron and going to each guy what's your call sign and what does it mean that kind of stuff right so they were really kneecapping esprit in a way that was was affecting our war fighting ability it was it was that bad um and people got out that otherwise would have stayed in and that's how you get united and american airlines pilots um you know and and uh it was just a bad time. So it had never been dealt with, I, I thought, accurately. And so that's what I attempted to do with this book. So I won't ruin it if you haven't read it. Um, but I, I'm really proud of the muddy character. And I'm proud of all everything around her um, that challenges her and how she screws up and then comes back. And her, because she's... Again, limited stick and rudder. The F-14 is a hard airplane to fly. The F-14A pre-DFCS and so forth and so on was a really hard airplane to land at the daytime, not to mention at night, not to mention take it to war and tank off a KC-135, where if you don't, you're going to have to divert to Pakistan. You know, that kind of pressure. But she winds up in those environments. And again, I won't wreck it whether she succeeds or fails because she kind of does a little of both. But... You know, again, this is my longest book. You know, it's 125,000 words. Uh, I I finished it when I was out of the Navy. I retired from the Navy, and I hadn't started my other day job. So the summer of 02, I was like a writer, you know, like writing full time, and and the book shows it. Um, 9-11 actually happened as I was writing this book, and me and my editor at Penguin Putnam were sort of going back and forth as to whether we wanted to incorporate 9-11. At first, it felt a little bit cheap to me. But once it simmered a bit, I, I realized I didn't have a choice, you know, and, and so that became the vehicle to get him back to war. And in fact, there's uh, there were no Tomcats over New York City on 9-11, but I kind of do what the F-15s did with Punk. And he's looking down on the city, feeling kind of like a, f- a fool that he couldn't have stopped anything with all this machinery and hardware and celebrations and movies about how great fighter guys are. He couldn't save you know, the Cantor Fitzgerald employees from their demise. And, and he's not feeling good about that. So a lot, lot going on in that book. Ward, is the audience that you wrote the trilogy for the same audience that you are after for your YouTube channel? Wow, that's a great question, Max. Um, I, I think, so I don't think you can didactically do something for a specific constituency. You will always fail. And how do I know this? Because my fourth and fifth books were that. You know, I tried to blatantly be commercial. And I pivoted from a fighter pilot to a Navy SEAL. How more cliche is that? Um, and I, I just lost my mojo in terms of sincerity, in terms of writing what I know, in terms of what's in my heart. You know, just, again, like a piece of music. Um, and so I started by writing what I thought was unique in terms of my point of view and, and the meter of my um, prose and my point of view, right? Again, I was trying to write the anti-techno thriller when techno thrillers were all the rage. And then it just, it's like the process kind of, 
you can't say, oh, and nor does the publisher ask you, who's this for? You know, you just have to finish it, submit it, and then it goes through the production process and gets changed in some ways massively um, if you have a good editor. And I did have a good editor uh, when I was at Naval Institute Press. So I think the answer is inadvertently yes, Max. The folks who enjoy my YouTube channel, what I'm doing there, obviously, like what Micah said, you know, relate to what I'm doing in the in the punk series. I think if you like the the wry stuff that I interject in an episode, some of the pop culture references and the other stuff, you know, all of a sudden I'm playing guitar, you know, as a movie clip. Um, there's a lot of that kind of humor in the books, right? I mean, I want, I want you to be in a fighter squadron. The fighter squadron is dry wit. And these are very smart, well-read dudes, accomplished dudes in a, an environment that sometimes is very boring and droll. And so humor is a big part of how you keep your toe tapping, not to mention when you actually you know, crash an airplane or whatever, you go to war, sense of humor is mandatory you know, to, to get the job done. So I wanted to intersperse that. So if you've read the books, you know what I mean when I say that there's humor interjected in all three of the books. They're quite hysterical, actually. Well, some is LOL, but some of it's just kind of like wise ass, you know, because I am a, a consummate wise ass. Um, and uh, so that's what I want to do with the channel, too. I, I, the the Mooch tally is a good example of that. Right. And I know some people in the comments get all fired up like, you know, what is, what is this mooch tally? That's not even a thing. I'm like, really? You think so? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know I, I, and, and people will mansplain me how there's no such thing as the real truth, you know, because I'll name a lot of episodes, the real truth of something. And this one guy was like, you may have missed my comment in the last episode you called the real truth. But by using both of those words, you've diminished the value of any either of them. I'm like, bro, lighten up, you know. <laughs> I'm having sport, the real truth. It's like better than the truth. It's the real truth, you know? And, and so it, I, I kind of want to do that because that's me. The channel has got to be a reflection of me. And uh, in fact, I just saw a mover. I don't know if you guys follow him, you know, C.W. Lemoyne. Um, he's a Hornet guy and a, a National Guard. And also, I guess he flies with the airlines too. But he just did one of these, look, and I guess every YouTuber reaches a point where the metrics start to come down you're like, now what do I do? You know, and I, I haven't quit hit that point yet. And also I'm positioning myself where I can tell stories beyond my experience. I think Mover particularly painted himself into a box. Like if it's not what Mover did, then, you know, he's sucking. Right. And so there's a finite amount, especially if you're only in your mid thirties. I mean, I'm 62, so I got a lot more stories. Um, and I was in the business for 20 years in uniform and then another 20 years as a military journalist. So, you know, I, my, I'm deep and wide with respect to my, the potential narrative. Um, and, you know, to wit, the Afghanistan episode, which I did as an embedded journalist, right? I didn't go there as a military guy. I was a journalist um, and got to see the war uh, up close and personal as, a, as the editor of military.com. So those kinds of things are at my disposal. But Moore was just saying, you know, hey, I don't care if you don't like when I talk about cars I'm going to talk about cars, which I, I was like, you go, you know, brother, because that's kind of how I feel. Right. I, like, I'm going to take you on a trip, but I'm all I can be is me. You know, so if you don't like when I talk about my musical gear, I'm sorry. You know, or if you don't like when I'm on Rick Beato's channel 
or whatever, then maybe this is the wrong channel for you, you know, because that's that melding is very important to me. And that's what has informed my body of work. And that's what made me stay in the Navy for all those years was, you know, my love of this life of great consequence, you know, and that that's kind of what people like, did you have a plan to stand for 20? I'm like, no, I, I just I stayed in for these consecutive tours and each one got more fun. And then you get to 20, you're like, oh, OK, I'll retire. Because by that point, Punk's War had come out and I had a two-book deal. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to be a writer, which is kind of like saying, now I'm going to be a golf pro, you know? Um, and not too many guys sign their tax form at the end of the year, golf pro or writer, which Stephen Kuhn said to me. He goes, you know, there's only 12 people in America that sign their tax form writer. We used to do deer camp at Stephen's house in West Virginia. And, you know, he paid for that with the money that he got from Paramount for the movie um, Flight of the Intruder, which they paid him a million dollars to stay away from the set. And so he bought a farm in West Virginia. <laughs> and he used to have this deer camp every November, right about this time of year. This week, we would have been at deer camp. His fourth wife made him sell it, and he moved to Las Vegas. Um, so no more deer camp with Stephen. Fantastic guy. I just wanted to, you you sort of put down your uh, fourth and fifth novels, Militia Kill and the Aid. And while they weren't what I expected when I picked them up, they were a lot of fun and really very good. So while they're not back in print yet, uh, they're certainly worth a read. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. I'm proud of the aid. I'm proud of the first half of Militia Kill. I'll just leave it at that. I can see that. Ward, one last thing uh, before we move on. Can you can you tell us the name of your band? Miles from Clever. Okay. So if you if you go up YouTube and type in Miles from Clever, we do have some live footage. We're we're playing a, a show in San Francisco um, back in 07. It's pretty well produced. Right. It's just a rock and roll cover band. And uh, these guys are my brothers. Uh, the other, the lead guitarist, the actually talented guitarist, is an, a retired Navy commander as well, a guy named Ed Gassy, call sign Opus. He, he was a test pilot kind of guy, F-14, F-18. He was in VF-1 um, when he was flying Tomcats. And our drummer is a computer network engineer. And uh, we just hired a new bass player. Bass players are hard to find. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Um, and his name is TJ Collins. He actually lives up here near me. Everybody else lives down south in southern Maryland. And we practice at the drummer's house, which is roughly halfway. All right, Ward, can you uh, point our listeners towards a, a website? Or we'll have a link to the YouTube channel, of course. But uh, is there any uh, home of Ward Carroll that people can uh, go to to kind of launch off and explore? Your well, stuff? so I'm going to have a Shopify website. I don't have it yet. Uh, so I, I think the best place to find me is on YouTube. Um, the best place to buy the book, books, to include the uh, the the bundle, um, there is a limited edition hardback bundle um, that the Naval Institute Press is published. They're signed, you know, holidays coming up, and uh, you can get that at usni.org, and, and then click on the books and press tab at the top, and then type in Punk's trilogy or Punk's War, and, and you'll, you'll that's. Uh, the best, cheapest place to get the books. And if you join the Naval Institute, you can get it even cheaper. And also, here's, and I say this every episode of the channel, if you use the checkout code PUNKYT, P-U-N-K-Y-T, at checkout when you're doing your e-commerce at 
USNI.org, you get 25% off. So that's cheaper than Amazon. Not that I'm a Jeff Bezos hater, but um, it's cheaper than Amazon if you go up USNI.org. And the only place to get the bundle, the hardback bundle, is at USNI.org. It's not for sale anywhere else. We're working on, you can get a Kindle of Punk's War, but we're working on the other two. As we speak, my agent and his team are working on getting Wing and Fight on Kindle. And we're working on audiobooks for all three. Punk's War does exist as an audiobook. It's it's six cassettes, <laughs> um, which I've digitized, but it's not anywhere unless you're a patron of mine. If you if you go up my Patreon page and become a patron, that's patreon.com slash wordcarol, you can listen to the audiobook of Punk's War for free. That's the only place right now where you can get the audiobook. But Again, my agent and his team are working on getting all three available as audiobooks as well. So as Micah indicated, um, you know, this is sort of a sudden thing, right? I mean, we talked about the trajectory of the site and with that, the demand signal. I mean, in the month of May alone, we sold a thousand copies of Punk's War. And for the previous year and a half, we sold 14 copies of Punk's War. <laughs> wow. So wow. that demand caught the publisher by surprise, right? Although I had briefed, the, his name's Adam, is the publisher, the name was suppressed. I'm like, hey, Adam, I'm not trying to big deal you, but I, this YouTube channel's kind of taken off. Do you mind if I mention the book? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. And so I did. And they're like, ah! And they had to do like two reprints in rapid succession. And then he's like, we'd like to do the other two, which they never had the rights to. Right, those were Penguin Putnam books, number two and number three in the trilogy. So fortunately, um, what started as an insult from the big city, meaning not only were the books out of print, but they reverted the rights to me. It's like we hate you so much that we don't even want the rights to these things, right? So what that now fast forward twenty years, it gives us the agility to go to the Naval Institute Press and go, yes, we can, we, we'll let you republish them. Terrific. Ward, it's been a real thrill talking with you, and uh, uh, we look forward to uh, following your channel and uh, uh, anything else that you create in the future because it's it's all been consistently very interesting. Um, you don't have to be a super military buff to enjoy and appreciate the you know the work that you've created. So we thank you for that, and thanks for coming on the airplane geeks. Well, thank you guys. You guys are awesome. I appreciate the invite. And thanks for your support of, uh, of what I'm doing. I very much. Find Ward on his YouTube channel. The Punks books are available on Amazon.com and on the U.S. Naval Institute website. All those links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this Airplane Geeks replay of our conversation with Ward Carroll in episode 680. Visit AirplaneGeeks.com for show notes, where to find us on social media, to learn more about us, and even make a donation to help support the show. You can reach us via email at thegeeks at AirplaneGeeks.com. And if you'd like to get an invitation to our Slack listener team or our Discord server, write to us at the same email address. So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast.